Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What would Robert do if he came face to face with the evil Antony Ferrara? Let's find out. Sax Romer. Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you, and we really appreciate your support. We've set it up so that for a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to easily build out your classic audiobook library. And... You help to give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. I have an announcement. The top 200 supporters for the year 2021 will be receiving a custom-designed Classic Tales Audiobooks enamel pin in the mail as a thank you gift. I've been working on this for a while, and I'm excited to get these sent out. If you'd like to get one, hop onto the website and show us a little love. Thanks again, everyone. It's getting closer to Christmas, and that means it's time to start unpacking our Christmas dishes. I don't know how you are, but do you have something that like your kids think is so funny, like a YouTube video or something like that, and they show it to you and you just don't get it? Our kids found this commercial for Sprite Cranberry with, I think it's LeBron James in it, like represented through stop motion. It's super cute and charming. And they think the way it ends with him saying, want a Sprite Cranberry? They think it is so funny or awesome or great, whatever. I don't. Scylla and I saw it, they showed it to us, and we just don't get it. They are seeing something we are not seeing or understanding. I don't know what it is, but... Anyway, a few years ago, we happened upon some glasses with ivy on them that look exactly like the ones in this Sprite Cranberry video. So we went and we bought all we could find from this eBay seller. And now those are our Christmas glasses. So every year, I'm on the lookout for Sprite Cranberry. So the kids can drink out of the glasses and laugh and talk about the video that's so funny. And Scylla and I can watch. We still don't get it. But we love that they have something, you know, that they enjoy together. So, that's what's going on this week. And now, The Night of the Necropolis, Part 7 of 8, by Sax Romer. Chapter 25, Cairn Meets Ferrara. Not the least of the trials which Robert Cairn experienced during the time that he and his father were warring with their supernaturally equipped opponent was that of preserving silence upon this matter, which loomed so large in his mind, 
and which already had changed the course of his life. Sometimes he met men who knew Ferrara, but who knew him only as a man about town of somewhat evil reputation. Yet even to these he dared not confide what he knew of the true Ferrara. Undoubtedly they would have deemed him mad had he spoken of the knowledge and of the deeds of this uncanny, this fiendish being. How would they have listened to him had he sought to tell them of the den of spiders in Port Said, of the bats of Maydum, of the secret incense and of how it was made, of the numberless murders and atrocities wrought by means not human, which stood to the account of this adopted son of the late Sir Michael Ferrara. So, excepting his father, he had no confidant. For above all, it was necessary to keep the truth from Myra Duquesne, from Myra, around whom his world circled, but who yet thought of the dreadful being who wielded the sorcery of forgotten ages as a brother. Whilst Myra lay ill, not yet recovered from the ghastly attack made upon her life by the man whom she trusted, whilst, having plentiful evidence of his presence in London, Dr. Cairn and himself vainly sought for Antony Ferrara, whilst any night might bring some unholy visitant to his rooms, obedient to the will of this modern wizard, whilst these fears, anxieties, doubts and surmises danced impish through his brain, it was all but impossible to pursue with success his vocation of journalism. Yet for many reasons it was necessary that he should do so. And so he was employed upon a series of articles, which were the outcome of his recent visit to Egypt, his editor having given him that work as being less exacting than that which properly falls to the lot of the Fleet Street copy-hunter. He left his rooms about three o'clock in the afternoon, in order to seek, in the British Museum Library, a reference which he lacked. The day was an exceedingly warm one, and he derived some little satisfaction from the fact that, at his present work, he was not called upon to endue the armor of respectability. Pipe in mouth, he made his way across the Strand towards Bloomsbury. As he walked up the steps, crossed the hallway, and passed in beneath the dome of the reading room, he wondered if, amid those mountains of erudition surrounding him, there was any wisdom so strange and so awful as that of Antony Ferrara. He soon found the information for which he was looking, and having copied it into his notebook, he left the reading room. Then, as he was recrossing the hall near the foot of the principal staircase, he paused. He found himself possessed by a sudden desire to visit the Egyptian rooms, upstairs. He had several times inspected the exhibits in those apartments, but never since his return from the land to whose ancient civilization they bore witness. Cairn was not pressed for time in these days, therefore he turned and passed slowly up the stairs. There were but few visitors to the Grove of Mummies that afternoon. When he entered the first room, he found a small group of tourists passing idly from case to case. But on entering the second, he saw that he had the apartment to himself.
He remembered that his father had mentioned on one occasion that there was a ring in this room which had belonged to the Witch Queen. Robert Cairn wondered in which of the cases it was exhibited and by what means he should be enabled to recognize it. Bending over a case containing scarabs and other amulets, many set in rings, he began to read the inscriptions upon the little tickets placed beneath some of them. But none answered to the description, neither the ticketed nor the unticketed. The second case he examined with like results. But on passing to a third, in an angle near the door, his gaze immediately lighted upon a gold ring set with a strange green stone, engraved in a peculiar way. It bore no ticket, yet as Robert Cairn eagerly bent over it, he knew, beyond the possibility of doubt, that this was the ring of the Witch Queen. Where had he seen it, or its duplicate? With his eyes fixed upon the gleaming stone, he sought to remember. That he had seen this ring before, or one exactly like it, he knew. But strangely enough, he was unable to determine where and upon what occasion. So, his hands resting upon the case, he leant, peering down at the singular gem. And as he stood thus, frowning in the effort of recollection, a dull white hand, having long tapered fingers, glided across the glass until it rested directly beneath his eyes. Upon one of the slim fingers was an exact replica of the ring in the case. Robert Cairn leapt back with a stifled exclamation. Antony Ferrara stood before him. The museum ring is a copy, dear Cairn, came the huskily musical, hateful voice. The one upon my finger is the real one. Cairn realized in his own person the literal meaning of the overworked phrase frozen with amazement. Before him stood the most dangerous man in Europe, a man who had done murder and worse, a man only in name, a demon in nature. His long black eyes half-closed, his perfectly chiseled ivory face expressionless, and his blood-red lips parted in a mirthless smile, Antony Ferrara watched Cairn. Cairn, whom he had sought to murder by means of hellish art. Despite the heat of the day, he wore a heavy overcoat, lined with white fox fur. In his right hand, for his left still rested upon the case, he held a soft hat. With an easy nonchalance, he stood regarding the man who had sworn to kill him, and the latter made no move, uttered no word. Stark amazement held him inert. I knew that you were in the museum, Cairn, Ferrara continued, still having his basilisk eyes fixed upon the other from beneath the drooping lids. And I called to you to join me here. Still, Cairn did not move, did not speak. You have acted 
very harshly towards me in the past, dear Cairn. But because my philosophy consists in an admirable blending of that practiced in Sybaris with that advocated by the excellent Zeno, because whilst I am prepared to make my home in a Diogenes tub, I nevertheless can enjoy the fragrance of a rose, the flavor of a peach. The husky voice seemed to be hypnotizing Cairn. It was a siren's voice, thralling him. Because, continued Ferrara evenly, in common with all humanity, I am compound of man and woman. I can resent the enmity which drives me from shore to shore, but being myself a connoisseur of the red lips and laughing eyes of maidenhood, I am thinking more particularly of Myra. I can forgive you, dear Cairn. Then Cairn recovered himself. You white-faced cur! He snarled through clenched teeth. His knuckles whitened as he stepped around the case. You dare to stand there, mocking me? Ferrara again placed the case between himself and his enemy. Pause, my dear Cairn, he said without emotion. What would you do? Be discreet, dear Cairn. Reflect that I have only to call an attendant in order to have you pitched ignominiously into the street. Before God, I will throttle the life from you, said Cairn, in a voice savagely hoarse. He sprang again towards Ferrara. Again the latter dodged around the case with an agility which defied the heavier man. Your temperament is so painfully Celtic, Cairn, he protested mockingly. I perceive quite clearly that you will not discuss this matter judicially. Must I then call for the attendant? Cairn clenched his fists convulsively. Through all the tumult of his rage, the fact had penetrated that he was helpless. He could not attack Ferrara in that place. He could not detain him against his will, for Ferrara had only to claim official protection to bring about the complete discomfiture of his assailant. Across the case containing the duplicate ring, he glared at this incarnate fiend, whom the law, which he had secretly outraged, now served to protect. Ferrara spoke again in his huskily musical voice. I regret that you will not be reasonable, Cairn. There is so much that I should like to say to you. There are so many things of interest which I could tell you. Do you know, in some respects I am peculiarly gifted, Cairn? At times I can recollect, quite distinctly, particulars of former incarnations. Do you see that priestess lying there, just through the doorway? I can quite distinctly remember having met her when she was a girl. She was beautiful, Cairn. And I can even recall how, one night beside the Nile, but I see that you are growing impatient. If you will not avail yourself of this opportunity, I must bid you good day. He turned 
and walked towards the door. Cairn leapt after him, but Ferrara, suddenly beginning to run, reached the end of the Egyptian room and darted out onto the landing before his pursuer had time to realize what he was about. At the moment that Ferrara turned the corner ahead of him, Cairn saw something drop. Coming to the end of the room, he stooped and picked up this object, which was a plated silk cord about three feet in length. He did not pause to examine it more closely, but thrust it into his pocket and raced down the steps after the retreating figure of Ferrara. At the foot, a constable held out his arm, detaining him. Cairn stopped in surprise. I must ask you for your name and address, said the constable gruffly. For heaven's sake, what for? A gentleman has complained. My good man, exclaimed Cairn, and proffered his card. It is, it is a practical joke on his part. I know him well. The constable looked at the card, and from the card, suspiciously, back to Cairn. Apparently the appearance of the latter reassured him, or he may have formed a better opinion of Cairn, from the fact that half a crown had quickly changed hands. All right, sir, he said. That is no affair of mine. He did not charge you with anything. He only asked me to prevent you from following him. Quite so, snapped Cairn irritably, and dashed off along the gallery in the hope of overtaking Ferrara. But, as he had feared, Ferrara had made good use of his ruse to escape. He was nowhere to be seen, and Cairn was left to wonder with what object he had risked the encounter in the Egyptian room. For that it had been deliberate and not accidental, he quite clearly perceived. He walked down the steps of the museum, deep in reflection. The thought that he and his father for months had been seeking the fiend Ferrara, that they were sworn to kill him as they would kill a mad dog, and that he, Robert Cairn, had stood face to face with Ferrara, had spoken with him, and had let him go free, unscathed, was maddening. Yet in the circumstances, how could he have acted otherwise? With no recollection of having traversed the intervening streets, he found himself walking under the archway leading to the court in which his chambers were situated. In the far corner, shadowed by the tall plane tree, were the worn iron railings of the steps and the small panes of glass in the solicitor's window on the ground floor called up memories of Charles Dickens. He paused, filled with a sort of wonderment. It seemed strange to him that such an air of peace could prevail anywhere whilst Antony Ferrara lived and remained at large. He ran up the stairs to the second landing, opened the door, and entered his chambers. He was oppressed today with a memory, the memory of certain gruesome happenings whereof these rooms had been the scene. Knowing the powers of Antony Ferrara, he often doubted the wisdom of living there alone. But he was persuaded that to allow these fears to make headway, would be to yield a point to the enemy. Yet there were nights when he found himself sleepless, listening for sounds which had seemed to arouse him, imagining sinister whispers in his room, and imagining that he could detect the dreadful odor of the secret incense. Seating himself by the open window, he took out from his pocket the silken cord 
which Ferrara had dropped in the museum, and examined it curiously. His examination of the thing did not serve to enlighten him respecting its character. It was merely a piece of silken cord, very closely and curiously plated. He threw it down on the table, determined to show it to Dr. Cairn at the earliest opportunity. He was conscious of a sort of repugnance, and prompted by this, he carefully washed his hands as though the cord had been some unclean thing. Then he sat down to work, only to realize immediately that work was impossible until he had confided in somebody his encounter with Ferrara. Lifting the telephone receiver, he called up Dr. Cairn, but his father was not at home. He replaced the receiver and sat staring vaguely at his open notebook. Chapter 26 The Ivory Hand For close upon an hour, Robert Cairn sat at his writing table, endeavoring to puzzle out a solution to the mystery of Ferrara's motive. His reflections served only to confuse his mind. A tangible clue lay upon the table before him, the silken cord. But it was a clue of such a nature that, whatever deductions an expert detective might have based upon it, Robert Cairn could base none. Dusk was not far off, and he knew that his nerves were not what they had been before those events which had led to his Egyptian journey. He was back in his own chamber, scene of one gruesome outrage in Ferrara's unholy campaign. For darkness is the ally of crime, and it had always been in the darkness that Ferrara's activities had most fearfully manifested themselves. What was that? Karen ran to the window, and leaning out, looked down into the court below. He could have sworn that a voice, a voice possessing a strange Music, a husky music, wholly hateful, had called him by name. But at the moment the court was deserted, for it was already past the hour at which members of the legal fraternity desert their business premises to hasten homewards. Shadows were creeping under the quaint old archways. Shadows were draping the ancient walls. And there was something in the aspect of the place which reminded him of a quadrangle at Oxford, across which, upon a certain fateful evening, he and another had watched the red light rising and falling in Antony Ferrara's rooms. Clearly his imagination was playing him tricks, and against this he knew full well that he must guard himself. The light in his rooms was growing dim, but instinctively his gaze sought out and found the mysterious silken cord amid the litter on the table. He contemplated the telephone, but since he had left a message for his father, he knew that the latter would ring him up directly he returned. Work, he thought, should be the likeliest antidote to the poisonous thoughts which oppressed his mind, and again he seated himself at the table and opened his notes before him. The silken rope lay close to his left hand, but he did not touch it. He was about to switch on the reading lamp, 
for it was now too dark to write, when his mind wandered off along another channel of reflection. He found himself picturing Myra as she had looked the last time that he had seen her. She was seated in Mr. Saunderson's garden, still pale from her dreadful illness, but beautiful, more beautiful in the eyes of Robert Cairn than any other woman in the world. The breeze was blowing her rebellious curls across her eyes, eyes bright with a happiness which he loved to see. Her cheeks were paler than they were wont to be, and the sweet lips had lost something of their firmness. She wore a short cloak and a wide-brimmed hat, unfashionable but becoming. No one but Myra could successfully have worn that hat, he thought. Wrapped in such lover-like memories, he forgot that he had sat down to write, forgot that he held a pen in his hand, and that this same hand had been outstretched to ignite the lamp. When he ultimately awoke again to the hard facts of his lonely environment, he also awoke to a singular circumstance. He made the acquaintance of a strange phenomenon. He had been writing unconsciously, and this was what he had written. Robert Cairn, renounce your pursuit of me, and renounce Myra, or tonight. The sentence was unfinished. Momentarily, he stared at the words, endeavoring to persuade himself that he had written them consciously, in idle mood. But some voice within gave him the lie, so that with a suppressed groan he muttered aloud, It has begun. Almost as he spoke, there came a sound from the passage outside that led him to slide his hand across the table and to seize his revolver. The visible presence of the little weapon reassured him, and as a further sedative, he resorted to tobacco, filled and lighted his pipe, and leant back in the chair, blowing smoke rings towards the closed door. He listened intently, and heard the sound again. It was a soft hiss. And now he thought he could detect another noise, as of some creature dragging its body along the floor. A lizard, he thought, and a memory of the basilisk eyes of Antony Ferrara came to him. Both the sounds seemed to come slowly nearer and nearer, the dragging thing being evidently responsible for the hissing, until Cairn decided that the creature must be immediately outside the door. Revolver in hand, he leapt across the room and threw the door open. The red carpet, to right and left, was innocent of reptiles. Perhaps the creaking of the revolving chair, as he had prepared to quit it, had frightened the thing. With the idea before him, he systematically searched all the rooms into which it might have gone. His search was unavailing. The mysterious reptile was not to be found. Returning again to the study, he seated himself behind the table, facing the door, which he left ajar. Ten minutes passed in silence, only broken by the dim murmur of the distant traffic. He had almost persuaded himself that his imagination, 
quickened by the atmosphere of mystery and horror wherein he had recently moved, was responsible for the hiss, when a new sound came to confute his reasoning. The people occupying the chambers below were moving about so that their footsteps were faintly audible. But above these dim footsteps, a rustling, vague, indefinite, demonstrated itself. As in the case of the hiss, it proceeded from the passage. A light burnt inside the outer door, and this, as Cairn knew, must cast a shadow before anything or person approaching the room. came, like the rustle of light draperies. The nervous suspense was almost unbearable. He waited. What was creeping, slowly, cautiously, towards the open door? Cairn toyed with the trigger of his revolver. The arts of the West shall try conclusions with those of the East, he said. A shadow. Inch upon inch it grew, creeping across the floor, until it covered all the threshold visible. Someone was about to appear. He raised the revolver. The shadow moved along. Cairn saw the tail of it creep past the door, until no shadow was there. The shadow had come and gone, but there was no substance. I am going mad. The words forced themselves to his lips. He rested his chin upon his hands and clenched his teeth grimly. Did the horrors of insanity stare him in the face? From that recent illness in London, when his nervous system had collapsed utterly, despite his stay in Egypt, he had never fully recovered. A month will see you fit again, his father had said. But perhaps he had been wrong. Perchance the affection had been deeper than he had suspected, and now this endless carnival of supernatural happenings had strained the weakened cells, so that he was become as a man in a delirium. Where did reality end and fantasy begin? Was it all merely subjective? He had read of such aberrations, and now he sat wondering if he were the victim of a like affliction. And while he wondered, he stared at the rope of silk. That was real. Logic came to his rescue. If he had seen and heard strange things, so too had Sime in Egypt. So had his father, both in Egypt and in London. Inexplicable things were happening around him, and all could not be mad. I am getting morbid again, he told himself. The tricks of our damnable Ferrara are getting on my nerves. Just what he desires and intends. This latter reflection spurred him to new activity, and pocketing the revolver, he switched off the light in the study and looked out of the window. Glancing across the court, he thought that he saw a man standing below, peering upward. With his hands resting upon the window ledge, Cairn looked long and steadily. There certainly was someone standing in the shadow of the tall plane tree, but whether man or woman, 
he could not determine. The unknown remaining in the same position, apparently watching, Cairn ran downstairs, and passing out into the court, walked rapidly across to the tree. There he paused in some surprise. There was no one visible by the tree, and the whole court was quite deserted. Must have slipped off through the archway, he concluded, and walking back, he remounted the stair and entered his chambers again. Feeling a renewed curiosity regarding the silken rope, which had so strangely come into his possession, he sat down at the table, and mastering his distaste for the thing, took it in his hands, and examined it closely by the light of the lamp. He was seated with his back to the windows, facing the door, so that no one could possibly have entered the room unseen by him. It was as he bent down to scrutinize the curious plating that he felt a sensation stealing over him, as though someone were standing very close to his chair. Grimly determined to resist any hypnotic tricks that might be practiced against him, and well assured that there could be no person actually present in the chambers, he sat back, resting his revolver on his knee. Prompted by he knew not what, he slipped the silk cord into the table drawer and turned the key upon it. As he did so, a hand crept over his shoulder, followed by a bare arm of the hue of old ivory, a woman's arm. Transfixed, he sat, his eyes fastened upon the ring of dull metal, bearing a green stone inscribed with a complex figure vaguely resembling a spider which adorned the index finger. A faint perfume stole to his nostrils, that of the secret incense, and the ring was the ring of the witch queen. In this incredible moment, he relaxed that iron control of his mind, which alone had saved him before. Even as he realized it and strove to recover himself, he knew that it was too late. He knew that he was lost. Gloom. Blackness. Unrelieved by any speck of light. Murmuring. Subdued all around the murmuring of a concourse of people. The darkness was odorous, with a heavy perfume. A voice came, followed by complete silence. Again the voice sounded, chanting sweetly. A response followed in deep male voices. The response was taken up all around, what time a tiny speck grew in the gloom, and grew until it took form, and out of the darkness the shape of a white-robed woman appeared, high up, far away. Whatever the ray that illumined her figure emanated from, it did not perceptibly dispel the Stygian gloom all about her. She was bathed in dazzling light, but framed in impenetrable darkness. Her dull gold hair was encircled by a band of white, metal-like silver, bearing in front a round, burnished disc, 
that shone like a minor sun. Above the disc projected an ornament having the shape of a spider. The intense light picked out every detail vividly. Neck and shoulders were bare, and the gleaming ivory arms were uplifted. The long slender fingers held aloft a golden casket covered with dim figures, almost undiscernible at that distance. A glittering zone of the same white metal confined the snowy draperies. Her bare feet peeped out from beneath the flowing robe. Above, below, and around her was Memphian darkness. Silence. The perfume was stifling. A voice, seeming to come from a great distance, cried, On your knees to the Book of Tote. On your knees to the Wisdom Queen, who is deathless, being unborn, who is dead though living, whose beauty is for all men, that all men may die. The whole invisible concourse took up the chant, and the light faded, until only the speck on the disk below the spider was visible. Then that too vanished. A bell was ringing furiously. Its din grew louder and louder. It became insupportable. Cairn threw out his arms and staggered up like a man intoxicated. He grasped at the table lamp, only just in time to prevent it overturning. The ringing was that of his telephone bell. He had been unconscious then, under some spell. He unhooked the receiver and heard his father's voice. That you, Rob? asked the doctor anxiously. Yes, sir, replied Cairn eagerly, and he opened the drawer and slid his hand in for the silken cord. There is something you have to tell me? Cairn, without preamble, plunged excitedly into an account of his meeting with Ferrara. The silk cord, he concluded, I have in my hand at the present moment, and— Hold on a moment, came Dr. Cairn's voice rather grimly. Followed a short interval. Then, Hello, Rob. Listen to this, from tonight's paper. A curious discovery was made by an attendant in one of the rooms— of the Indian section of the British Museum late this evening. A case had been opened in some way, and although it contained more valuable objects, the only item which the thief had abstracted was a thug's strangling cord from Kundali, district of Nursingpore. But I don't understand. Ferrara meant you to find that cord, boy. Remember he is unacquainted with your chambers, and he requires a focus for his damnable forces. He knows well that you will have the thing somewhere near to you, and probably he knows something of its awful history. You are in danger. Keep a fast hold upon yourself. I shall be with you in less than half an hour. Chapter 27 The Thug's Cord As Robert Cairn hung up the receiver and found himself cut off again from the outer world, he realized with terror beyond his control, how, in this quiet backwater, so near to the main stream, he yet was far from human companionship. He recalled a night when, amid such a silence as this which now prevailed about him, he had been made the subject of an uncanny demonstration. 
how his sanity, his life, had been attacked, how he had fled from the crowding horrors which had been massed against him by his supernaturally endowed enemy. There was something very terrifying in the quietude of the court, a quietude which to others might have spelt peace, but which to Robert Cairn spelled menace. That Ferrara's device was aimed at his freedom, that his design was intended to lead to the detention of his enemy, whilst he directed his activities in other directions, seemed plausible, if inadequate. The carefully planned incident at the museum whereby the constable had become possessed of Cairn's card, the distinct possibility that a detective might knock upon his door at any moment, with the inevitable result of his detention pending inquiries, formed a chain which had seemed complete, save that Antony Ferrara was the schemer. For another to have compassed so much would have been a notable victory. For Ferrara, such a victory would be trivial. What, then, did it mean? His father had told him, and the uncanny events of the evening stood evidence of Dr. Cairn's wisdom. The mysterious and evil force which Antony Ferrara controlled was being focused upon him. Slight sounds from time to time disturbed the silence, and to these he listened attentively. He longed for the arrival of his father, for the strong, calm counsel of the one man in England fitted to cope with the hell thing which had uprisen in their midst. That he had already been subjected to some kind of hypnotic influence, he was unable to doubt. And having once been subjected to this influence, he might at any moment, it was a terrible reflection, fall a victim to it again. Karen directed all the energies of his mind to resistance. Ill-defined reflection must at all costs be avoided, for the brain, vaguely employed, he knew to be more susceptible to attack than that directed in a well-ordered channel. Clocks were chiming the hour. He did not know what hour, nor did he seek to learn. He felt that he was at rapier play with a skilled antagonist, and that to glance aside, however momentarily, was to lay himself open to a fatal thrust. He had not moved from the table, so that only the reading lamp upon it was lighted, and much of the room lay in half-shadow. The silken cord, coiled snake-like, was close to his left hand. The revolver was close to his right. The muffled roar of traffic, diminished since the hour grew late, reached his ears as he sat. But nothing disturbed the stillness of the court, and nothing disturbed the stillness of the room. The notes which he had made in the afternoon at the museum were still spread open before him, and he suddenly closed the book, fearful of anything calculated to distract him from the mood of tense resistance. His life, and more than his life, depended upon his successfully opposing the insidious forces which, beyond doubt, invisibly surrounded that lighted table. There is a courage, which is not physical, nor is it entirely moral, a courage often lacking in the most intrepid soldier. And this was the kind of courage which Robert Cairn now called up to his aid. 
the occult inquirer can face, unmoved, horrors, which would turn the brain of many a man who wears the VC. On the other hand, it is questionable if the possessor of this peculiar type of bravery could face a bayonet charge. Pluck of the physical sort, Cairn had in plenty. Pluck of that more subtle kind, he was acquiring from growing intimacy with the terrors of the borderland. Who's there? He spoke the words aloud, and the eerie sound of his own voice added a new dread to the enveloping shadows. His revolver grasped in his hand, he stood up, but slowly and cautiously, in order that his own movements might not prevent him from hearing any repetition of that which had occasioned his alarm. And what had occasioned this alarm? Either he was becoming again a victim of the strange trickery which already had borne him, though not physically, from Fleet Street to the secret temple of Maydoom, or, with his material senses, he had detected a soft rapping upon the door of his room. He knew that his outer door was closed. He knew that there was no one else in his chambers. Yet he had heard a sound as of knuckles beating upon the panels of the door, the closed door of the room in which he sat. Standing upright, he turned deliberately and faced in that direction. The light pouring out from beneath the shade of the table lamp scarcely touched upon the door at all. Only the edges of the lower panels were clearly perceptible. The upper part of the door was masked in greenish shadow. Intent, tensely strung, he stood, then advanced in the direction of the switch in order to light the lamp fixed above the mantelpiece and to illuminate the whole of the room. One step forward he took. Then, the soft rapping was repeated. Who's there? This time he cried the words loudly, and acquired some new assurance from the imperative note in his own voice. He ran to the switch and pressed it down. The lamp did not light. The filament has burned out, he muttered. Terror grew upon him. A terror akin to that which children experience in the darkness. But he yet had a fair mastery of his emotions, when, not suddenly, as is the way of a failing electric lamp, but slowly, uncannily, unnaturally, the table lamp became extinguished. Darkness. Cairn turned towards the window. This was a moonless night, and little enough illumination entered the room from the court. Three resounding raps were struck upon the door. At that, terror had no darker meaning for Cairn. He had plumbed its ultimate deeps, and now, like a diver, he arose again to the surface. Heedless of the darkness, of the seemingly supernatural means by which it had been occasioned, he threw open the door and thrust his revolver out into the corridor. For terrors he had been prepared for some gruesome shape such as we read of in the Magus. But there was nothing. Instinctively he had looked straight ahead of him, as one looks who expects to encounter a human enemy. But the hallway was empty. A dim light, finding access over the door from the stair, prevailed there. 
yet it was sufficient to have revealed the presence of anyone or anything, had anyone or anything been present. Karen stepped out from the room and was about to walk to the outer door. The idea of flight was strong upon him, for no man can fight the invisible. When, on a level with his eyes, flat against the wall, as though someone crouched there, he saw two white hands. They were slim hands, like the hands of a woman, and upon one of the tapered fingers there dully gleamed a green stone. A peal of laughter came chokingly from his lips. He knew that his reason was tottering, for these two white hands, which now moved along the wall, as though they were sidling to the room which Cairn had just quitted, were attached to no visible body. Just two ivory hands were there, and nothing more. That he was in deadly peril, Cairn realized fully. His complete subjection by the will force of Ferrara had been interrupted by the ringing of the telephone bell, but now the attack had been renewed. The hands vanished. Too well he remembered the ghastly details attendant upon the death of Sir Michael Ferrara to doubt that these slim hands were directed upon murderous business. A soft swishing sound reached him. Something upon the writing table had been moved, the strangling cord. Whilst speaking to his father, he had taken it out from the drawer, and when he had quitted the room, it had lain upon the blotting pad. He stepped back towards the outer door. Something fluttered past his face, and he turned in a mad panic. The dreadful, bodiless hands groped in the darkness between himself and the exit. Vaguely it came home to him that the menace might be avoidable. He was bathed in icy perspiration. He dropped the revolver into his pocket and placed his hands upon his throat. Then he began to grope his way towards the closed door of his bedroom. Lowering his left hand, he began to feel for the doorknob. As he did so, he saw and knew the crowning horror of the night, that he had made a false move. In retiring, he had thrown away his last, his only, chance. The phantom hands, a yard apart and holding the silken cord stretched tightly between them, were approaching him swiftly. He lowered his head and charged along the passage with a wild cry. The cord, stretched taut, struck him under the chin. Back he reeled. The cord was about his throat. God! he choked and thrust up his hands. Madly, he strove to pluck the deadly silken thing from his neck. It was useless. A grip of steel was drawing it tightly and ever more tightly about him. Despair touched him, and almost he resigned himself. Then, Rob! Rob! Open the door! Dr. Cairn was outside. A new strength came, and he knew that it was the last atom left to him. To remove the rope was humanly impossible. He dropped his cramped hands, bent his body by a mighty physical effort, and hurled himself forward upon the door. The latch now was just above his head. He stretched up and was plucked back, but the fingers of his right hand grasped the knob convulsively. Even as that superhuman force jerked him back, he turned to the knob and fell.
All his weight hung upon the fingers which were locked about that brass disc in a grip which even the powers of darkness could not relax. The door swung open, and Cairn swung back with it. He collapsed, an inert heap upon the floor. Dr. Cairn leapt over him. When he reopened his eyes, he lay in bed, and his father was bathing his inflamed throat. All right, boy. There's no damage done, thank God. The hands! I quite understand. But I saw no hands but your own, Rob. And if it had come to an inquest, I could not even have raised my voice against a verdict of suicide. But I opened the door. They would have said that you repented your awful act too late. Although it is almost impossible for a man to strangle himself under such conditions, there is no jury in England who would have believed that Antony Ferrara had done the deed. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Night of the Necropolis, Part 7 of 8, by Sax Romer. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter. For $5 a month, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you can. It really helps other folks to find our show. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.